Good morning. Good morning. It is good to be here this morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Revelation, and this morning, as we've heard read, we are coming to look at the church in Thyatira. Now, if we were wanting to go out and to look for the church in Thyatira this morning, we would have to go to modern-day Turkey, and we would find that the church in Thyatira is indeed known well for its industrial exports, particularly dealing in bronze and other kinds of crafts. So they were well known all around the world for producing good quality products. But this morning, and perhaps as you picked up from the the, the letter that Jesus addresses to the church in Thyatira, I, I would not particularly envy the leader of this particular congregation. We can imagine that he would probably have had some sleepless nights because the letter homes in on the, conduct, in the conduct sorry, of one particular member of the church. It focuses upon her conduct, it focuses upon her teaching, and it focuses upon the effect that this is subsequently having on the church. Now, everybody would have known who was being spoken about. They would have known what she had done. They would have known what those who aligned themselves with her had done. And in fact, Jesus, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the person who died and rose again after three days, he addresses his letter to the church in Thyatira directly at this one person. This would not have been an easy letter to have to stand up and read. It would have undoubtedly been painful. Because the church in Thyatira would have been at risk of splitting and separating and falling apart as a result. The letter this morning highlights to us, I think as well, the the risks associated with placing the words and placing the messages of humanity or indeed of, of one person before the word of God. It highlights to us the the risk of of listening to other people, even when what they are saying and what they are suggesting seems to be on the face of it, spirit-filled and in accordance with what we think and know to be true in the words of Scripture, or indeed more perhaps more accurately, it highlights to us the risks of listening to other people who present the things that we want to be true. This is especially true, I think, in our own age, where there has grown a large following around so-called Christian celebrities. Many well-known preachers and teachers and authors of books and producers of podcasts and hosts on religious TV channels cultivate a following because what they say might well be indeed right and wise and godly. However, we start to get onto shaky ground when, when the words and the messages of these people are held in higher regard and higher esteem than the Word of God Himself. When we spend more time reading um, books written by human hands and place, the, place, place greater value and greater importance upon these books rather than on the one book that was written and inspired by God, then we need to take a good hard look at where we are placing our own, our own values and our own emphasis. But it is, I think, particularly appropriate to be looking at this letter this morning, especially this morning, because it is Remembrance Sunday. We might be tempted, indeed, to place 
our trust and our belief in other Christians, especially the well-known ones. But even more dangerous and an even greater warning for us today is found when we consider the ways and the means in which culture and governments do indeed seduce the church into supporting their policies and directives with the promise of prestige and a seat at the table of power in return. Now, this was seen all too readily in the lead-up to and throughout World War II in certain sectors of the German church, where support for Nazi policies and support for the things which eventually led to the Holocaust and led to all-out war were all too readily advocated for and preached from the pulpits of a number of German churches. And in return, the German government was seen as the ultimate saviour of the world. They produced this brand of German um, positive Christianity. And I quote, this, this form of Christianity was not dependent upon the Apostles' Creed, nor was it dependent upon faith in Christ as the Son of God. Rather, it, repre- it was represented by the Nazi party, and the Fuhrer was to be the herald of the new revelation. And many, many churches and many, many people, many, many individuals fell for this. They believed that this was right and this was true and this was absolutely the way that it was going to be. And if we think that we are free from such attitudes today, then we need only look across to some of what is coming out of the United States at present, especially in support for President Trump and the support that he enjoys from large parts of the evangelical church in return for the promise that the things that they want to see happen will happen. The lure and the temptation of the power offered by the world, or indeed the so-called secrets of Satan, as they are called in verse 24 of our passage, is not something which is resigned to the corridors of history and has no basis or no play in our own lives. It is much an issue for the church in 2019 today as it has been at any other point in the church's history. The church is all too ready to replace and to supplant the grace and the mercy of God for the desires and the policies of government and other people. And indeed, our passage this morning addresses this in three main parts. So firstly, we need to realize that the person who is speaking to the church in Thyatira is indeed Jesus himself. We read this in verse 18. The description of Jesus reinforces this. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This adds to the descriptions that we've read in the letters to the other churches in verses 1, 8, and 12 of Revelation chapter 2, and which will indeed carry on into the remaining letters. But this description of Jesus points us and reminds us of the truth of Jesus' position as the one and only the true Son of God. The only God who is, in fact, worth worshipping, because in Thyatira and, and, and throughout the whole of the Roman Empire stamped into their coins would have been an endorsement of the emperor as the alleged son of one of the Roman gods. But in Jesus' address to the church, he sets out his stall as the one and only true son of God. And indeed, he is the son of God whose feet stand as burnished bronze, as we read, who provides us with the only sure foundation upon which we can build our hope and assurance. 
The Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, can see right through us, who can see the fullness of our emotions and our secrets and our attitudes, and indeed can see the things that we, many of us, perhaps would rather were left unseen. The Jesus who is speaking directly to the church in Thyatira is setting out his stall, saying, this is who I am, this is why you should listen to me. And so actually we can imagine that the church in Thyatira are probably feeling not too bad about themselves as Jesus goes on to list their good deeds in verse 19. Because this list is like, it's like a list of a, a, a good and, and full and mature Christian community, the kind of church that the Apostle Paul would encourage other churches to be like in their attitudes and approaches. This is the kind of description that we would like to have written about us. Their good deeds, their love, their faith, their service, their perseverance, all of these things have been growing. The church is maturing in the things that they are doing well. And Jesus sees this, but we need to realize that this is only one verse. The rest of the letter to the church largely is dedicated to the church's problem. And I I, I don't know, we we might think that this is unfair. We might think that, that these letters spend so much time looking at the bad stuff that is going on in so many of these churches, not all of them, but in so many of them, that we think, do you know, Jesus, just going to just say something nice. Let's not focus on, on the bad stuff. Let's not focus on what's going wrong. Let's just say, you know, you're doing really well. Be encouraged and carry on. But indeed, actually, we see that, that this is not the case because this is, Jesus is adopting the attitude of any good doctor or physician. If you go for your medical and they say, you know, you're really healthy, you're great for a man of 90 but you've got this one problem. Do you know, you don't want the doctor to say, well, that's great, look at all this good stuff, and actually we'll leave this one thing that could be potentially life-threatening. You want the doctor to address that one thing. If you're well apart from one part of your anatomy, as was the case with the church in Thyatira, you want the doctor to treat that one thing and to spend time treating it especially if it is potentially life-threatening. And the problem in the church, the problem that the church faced was indeed potentially life-threatening because we see in verse 20 that Jesus highlights his issue with them. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. I had a really bad dream that I did that last night. <laughs> now, it is likely that, the, that this particular woman is not actually called Jezebel, but we can believe that every single person who was hearing this letter knew who was being talked about. Jesus did not have to use her name in addressing the church. Instead, what he does is much more effective because he, by calling her Jezebel, he draws a direct link with the Jezebel that we read of in 1 Kings chapter 16 through to chapter 20, who was the, the wife of King Ahab, who was a particularly um, poor king in the life of Israel. And Jezebel um, actively introduced worship of the false god Baal into Israel. And, and, and this in turn led to, to 
um, severe famine and drought as the people of God turned their back on him, resulting ultimately in untold suffering for the people of Israel. This is what was at stake and what was on offer if the church in Thyatira continued following this self-appointed prophet, this woman who purported and, and presented this message who was, um, um, she was saying was from God. And it is important to realize that, that the consequences that they faced were not some kind of um, distant consequence that wouldn't really have any kind of discernible impact on their lives, But looking at Israel's history, we can see that following this woman would only have led to absolute disaster. And these things are outlined in verses 22 and 23. But we do see in the midst of this that there are clear examples of God's abundant mercy and grace. By our teaching, Jezebel has led servants of the gospel into patterns of behavior that are counter to the truth. And yet God clearly grants her the time which he has deemed to be fair and which he has deemed to be righteous and the fullness of his sovereignty to let her change her ways. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And as such, we arrive at the crux of the problem for the church in Thyatira. Jesus has said to them that their main problem is their tolerance. He said that their main problem is their tolerance. And we might well argue that tolerance is a good and godly virtue. That tolerance is is, is pushed and is indeed called for. All the way throughout the gospel, especially in the Old Testament law where provision was to be made for the widow and the foreigner living amongst them in Israel. And yet we see here in our passage today that clearly tolerance has its limits. This is a point that that there there, there is a point at which tolerance moves from being a, a, a loving attitude to being something entirely unloving. Do you know, in, in trying to, to explain this, I imagine that there was someone in your house who perhaps wanted to do harm either to your, your, your husband or your wife or perhaps to your, your child or indeed to your elderly parents. We can believe that, that tolerating this person amongst us, a toler- tolerating this person's presence in your home would not, in fact, be loving. In fact, it would be just the opposite because their actions would lead to increased suffering and pain. Therefore, clearly, the the most loving thing to do in that case would be to be intolerant towards that person. And this is not, I'm not advocating violence towards that person. I'm not advocating that you um, physically go and, and hurt them in response to their attitudes or to the things that they would want to do. But what I'm saying is that to refuse to allow that person to remain and to act in such a way as to perpetuate the pain and suffering that they might inflict is, in fact, the more loving approach and the more loving attitude. And this is what the church in Thyatira was being called to. Because Jezebel's actions were not going to lead to increased unity. They were not going to lead to increased um, love. And they were not going to lead to increased knowledge of God. 
In fact, they were going to do just the opposite. And the problem that Jesus has is that they have tolerated her for too long and have allowed her to get a foothold amongst them. And equally, this is why we today need to be so careful, why we need to guard ourselves against the lure and the temptation of power and prestige that can be and is offered to us by the world in which we live. There's all too often the things that might be presented to us might be seen as good and godly. They might be couched in amongst various Bible verses, or indeed we might see them as things which we can use to our own good ends, even if the method is less savory. We are told that if we support this political party or this candidate, then they will allow special privileges or tax exemptions or whatever for the church. They'll make our lives easier as believers. But so often behind it all is a spirit of greed and of self-glorification rather than God-glorification. And yet we trust and we know that the Jesus whose eyes are like blazing fire, he searches hearts and minds in verse 23 and fakes cannot fool him. But even in response to all of this, even in the face of all that is going on, Jesus offers an assurance to his church that indeed victory is his now and forevermore. And whoever remains faithful to him shall be granted the same authority and the same power as he had been granted by God the Father. In verse 27. The church throughout history has so often been all too ready to trade eternal and everlasting power It's all too often been ready to trade the the eternal and everlasting glory of God for the immediate and seemingly greater power of the world and institutions and of particular people. This is in, in, in large part what has led the church to supporting regimes and political moves which are so utterly contrary to the gospel. Not just in recent times, but as I said, all throughout history. The suggestions which can seem to be good and true and right and godly can quickly come crashing down as little more than the selfish ambition of a group of self-aggrandizing and self-appointed prophets as in our passage today. Yet we do, in fact, trust and we see that those who remain faithful in the midst of all of these things, those who don't turn away, those who refuse to succumb to the falsehoods and and, and to the lies and to the practices which are demonstrably counter to God's gospel initiatives, we can see that they are granted the fullness of Jesus. The Jesus who is described as the morning star, this is one of the many titles he's given in the New Testament, particularly in Revelation, that is the star who grants us the assurance and the hope that the things that we hold on to are greater and more powerful than anything that this world can offer or present before us. The morning star who is seen and witnessed more clearly just as the world looks to be at its blackest and most hopeless. Because true faith in Jesus grants us the certainty that we are able to see and believe and know that the failures of the church the weaknesses of the people inside the church, the temptations and the lures of the world in which we live, 
that soon these things are going to be a thing of the past. Our passage this morning reminds us of the very real and very present temptations of our world. Yet it also reminds us that we have a hope in spite of these things. We have a firm foundation upon which to build these things in the person of Jesus, in what he has done. A hope that cannot be extinguished and sees its fullness realized after three days when Jesus rises again from the grave. And as such, this morning we do pray and we do trust that whoever has hears will hear what, the, what Jesus is saying to his church. That includes each and every single one of us. That does not mean that we can just look at history and think, oh, I can see where they went wrong. But we actively need to be looking today that where we've maybe got things twisted, where we've maybe got things not quite the right way around, and we need to return to Jesus, return to the gospel, and see what it is that he is calling us to. Are we all too ready to accept the, the lure and the temptation of political power for our own benefit? Or do we trust and hope in the sure certainty that things that are coming are going to be better, that the thing that Jesus offers is better than the thing that our worlds offer? Amen.